Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello there, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Um, despite indications to the contrary from the current incumbent, Joe Biden is going to be sworn in as the 46th president of the United States in two months' time. But what is a Biden administration going to look like, and how is it going to deal with the rest of the world? Will we see a return to the positions of the Obama White House, or have geopolitical tensions, particularly those with China, moved us into a new era of global power broking? To discuss this, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor John Mearsheimer. He's one of the one of the most foremost analysts and also critics at times of America's foreign policy under successive administrations since the end of the Cold War in particular. He's probably best known in this part of the world as the co-author of The Israel Lobby, which controversially dissected the impact of that powerful lobby on American foreign policy. And that's a subject we may touch on. But perhaps and even more relevant is his most recent book, Great Delusion, Liberal Dreams and International Realities. And he's just been addressing a webinar organised by the Institute of International and European Affairs. John, you're very welcome. Glad to be here, you. Um, I suppose before we look forward, maybe we could look back a little bit. As we exit this Trump era, or maybe the first Trump era, how would you characterise the the international posture of his administration? Well, I think the key thing to keep in mind about the Trump years is that Trump was dealing with a new world in the sense that the unipolar moment effectively came to an end at about the same time he moved into the White House. And we entered into what most people today call a multipolar world. When President Obama was running the American ship of state, and this of course was certainly true with his predecessors, Uh, we operated in the unipolar moment. The United States was by far the most powerful country on the planet. It was the unipolar world. Today, there are three great powers, Russia, China, and the United States. And it's widely agreed in the United States that China is a potential peer competitor to the United States. Therefore, the United States has its main focus today on China. The United States is interested in containing China. That was not true in the Obama years, because again, we were in the unipolar moment. So this fundamental change took place between the Obama administration and the Trump administration, which had little to do with the individuals sitting in the White House, and much to do with the fact that the glacis plates that underlie the system, that underpin the system, were shifting, and we were going from unipolarity to multipolarity. Now, when President-elect Biden moves into the White House, he is not moving into that unipolar world 
that he operated in when he was vice president working for Barack Obama. He is in the world, that multipolar world, that Donald Trump operated in. So I think that one major continuity that you will see between the Trump years and the Biden years is that the Americans will be focusing laser-like on China and they will be deeply committed to figuring out ways to contain China and to prevent it from becoming a hegemon in Asia. Well, well that's very interesting because we're, we're already starting to see some criticism of the team as the first names start coming out about the kind of people who might be involved on uh, secretary, you know, who, who, who the Secretary of State might be and who else might be in the State Department, that it's a return to the Obama years. But you're saying that regardless of who actually gets appointed to these positions and whatever their history in previous administrations would be, the job they face is, is, is profoundly different. There's no question about that. We are getting, in terms of the players in the Biden administration, the same old, same olds. There's no question about that. No new faces. Uh, uh, there are certainly some young people uh, who have come on the scene who were not around in the Obama years, but they speak just like their elders. However, the world that they're operating in is profoundly different in the sense that we now believe, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, that China is a potential threat of great significance to the United States. It's the principal threat in the system and that the United States has to focus on containing it. And that would be true whether Trump got another four years or whether you get Biden, which of course is what happened. Um, would I be right in saying that you were you were a critic of the previous position that you know that the world that emerged at, after the the collapse of the the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact the unipolar world as you described it that the foreign policy the promotion of liberal values above all else which was at least the the sticker on the hood of the car which was being driven for the thirty years after after nineteen eighty nine that you believe that was the wrong position for the United States to take particularly when it led to things like you know, world's policeman type activities in, in the Balkans and later in the Middle East? Well, let me just say that I think it was a fundamentally flawed policy that we adopted after the Cold War. Uh, I, I call it, and many of my colleagues call it, liberal hegemony. Uh, and the name of the game was to spread liberal democracy all around the planet, oftentimes at the end of a rifle barrel, uh, to uh, create this uh, liberal international economic order and go to great lengths to integrate countries like China and Russia into it. Uh, and then number three, to promote international institutions, uh, to build new ones like the WTO uh, and, ex and expand existing ones like NATO. Uh, that's what liberal hegemony was all about. Uh, and it had disastrous consequences. Number one, it lent it led to uh, a series of policies and wars in the Middle East that created a huge amount of chaos and destruction. It's remarkable how colossal the American failure was in the greater Middle East. Number two, it led to NATO expansion, uh, which helped precipitate the Ukraine crisis and has poisoned relations with the Russians. And third, and most importantly, it helped turn China into a Goliath, 
the reason China is a potential peer competitor today uh, and such a threat to the United States is because the American foreign policy elite foolishly helped China grow into an incredibly powerful country that now threatens the United States. This was a fundamentally flawed policy. And I would point out to you, you, that the principal reason in terms of foreign policy that Donald Trump won in 2016 is that he ran explicitly against liberal hegemony. He said liberal hegemony was a failed foreign policy on every dimension. He ran against international institutions. He read against, ran against open trade. He ran against the idea of spreading democracy around the globe, especially at the end of a rifle barrel. And he was elected president of the United States. The American people judged that the American foreign policy establishment's pursuit of liberal hegemony was a failure. And this, by the way, is one of the reasons, as Joe Biden brings back the same old, same olds into power, that there's not a lot of enthusiasm in the United States for seeing these people come back to Washington. We've seen them before, and they did not do a very good job. And therefore, should we have confidence in them now? And people are skeptical. Well, whatever about the idea of promoting liberal democracy at the barrel of a gun. <clears throat> what about arguing for certain values which countries like the United States and indeed most Western European countries claim to cleave to, for example, the human rights of Muslims in China, for example, when uh, when carrying out foreign policy, making that an important part of one's objectives to, to stand on behalf of those? Well, the problem is that there's a fine line between arguing for human rights and arguing for liberal values and trying to impose them on other countries. And the problem that you get into is that most countries around the world believe in sovereignty. They believe that they have the right to determine what their own domestic politics look like. As you surely know from watching the news, Americans go ballistic. They're outraged when there's any evidence that the Russians or the Iranians or the Chinese are interfering in our elections. They're interfering in our domestic politics. How dare people interfere in American politics? We are a sovereign nation state. Other states do not have the right to interfere in our politics. Well, what you're saying, you, is that we in the West have the right to interfere in the politics of other countries. We have a right to interfere in Chinese politics. We have a right to interfere in Russian politics. If we don't like Vladimir Putin and we think that he has authoritarian tendencies, we have a right to try and promote a color revolution inside of Russia. Well, you may think this way, but you want to understand that there's going to be real pushback from the other side. The Russians are not going to be happy with your view. The Chinese are not going to be happy with your view. And when you take your guns and your tanks and your aircraft and you invade countries like Afghanistan and Iraq, they're not going to be happy to see you there telling them how to run their politics because they, like us, think we're sovereign nation states. This is not to say that I don't appreciate your point about liberal values. I thank 
my lucky stars that I was born in liberal America and grew up in liberal America. So I'm not anti-liberal in any way. And I understand the thrust of what you're saying. But you have to understand that there's another side to this story. And it has to do with sovereignty. And that you're asking for big trouble in lots of cases when you interfere in the sovereign business of other states. I think that's a that's a very fair point. But I suppose I'd, I'd, the only point I'd push back on is that the last time we had a multipolar world, which was during the Cold War, the Cold War was ultimately won by economic success and military power on behalf of the West and primarily for the United States. But one could also argue that to some extent it was it was won by winning an argument, which was about the best way to order a society and the collapse of one of the systems, the Soviet system, which was involved in that. So there was an element there, wasn't there? At least certainly one promoted very heavily by the United States, even though I'm sure some people listening to this disagree with whether it was true or not, that the United States and its allies represented a better way of running a society, offered a better example for the future. I agree with everything you said, but let me just put a twist on what you said. We did not invade countries in Eastern Europe or in the Soviet empire, so to speak. And what we did is we served as a model and we spoke loudly and clearly about the virtues of liberal democracy and the virtues of capitalism. And there's no question that people on the other side of the divide came to realize that we had a superior system. Did we have a perfect system? No, we had a superior system. And I think there's nothing wrong with trying to set yourself up as the city on the hill and trying to purvey your values around the world. And I think that's what we did in the Cold War. And I think that it contributed to the collapse of communism and the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I'm in agreement with you there. But I think what the United States tried to do after the Cold War ended was it tried to act with the tremendous military power and political and economic power that it had to interfere directly in the politics of countries all around the world for the purposes of spreading those values and turning them into liberal democracies and getting them hooked on capitalism. And I think ultimately it backfired. Mm. What does this struggle for hegemony between the three powers you mentioned, the United States, China and Russia, what does that look like now? I mean, is it like a new Cold War? Are there proxy military conflicts that happen around the, the planet? Is it mostly about trade conflicts of one sort or another? Well, there are only two countries that are involved here. It's the United States and China. Russia is a declining great power. It's by far the weakest of the three great powers despite all the Russophobia in the United States and in Europe, especially in Western Europe, uh, the Russians are not a serious threat. Uh, the real threat to the United States is China. Now, the competition that is uh, now taking place between the United States and China will effectively be a new Cold War or is effectively a new Cold War. Uh, the Chinese want to become a regional hegemon. The Chinese want to become uh, 
want to be in a situation similar to the one that the United States is in, in the Western Hemisphere. Now, what exactly does that mean? The Chinese want to be by far the most powerful country in Asia, just like the United States is by far the most powerful country in the Western Hemisphere. And two, the Chinese want to drive the Americans out of Asia, especially out of East Asia, and they want to have a Monroe Doctrine of their own. And who can blame them? I'm an American. I'm perfectly content with the fact that the United States is by far the most powerful country in the Western Hemisphere, and I like the Monroe Doctrine. I do not want European or Asian great powers moving their military forces into the Western Hemisphere. Well, the Chinese feel the same way about American military forces on their doorstep. They're not happy about that. And they will tell you behind closed doors, they'd like to push us out beyond the first island chain, and then they'd like to push us out beyond the second island chain. They want their own Monroe Doctrine. So this is their basic goal. The Americans, of course, do not want them to dominate Asia and become a peer competitor. So we are moving to contain them. And it will have a military dimension and an economic dimension. The United States under President Trump has basically declared economic war against China. We're trying to slow down Chinese economic growth. We're trying to wreck Huawei, right? So there's not just going to be a military policy of containment. You're also going to have economic competition, if not economic conflict. Now, my final point is that at the moment, this is restricted to East Asia or to Asia more generally, right? But what the Chinese are also doing is they're developing power projection capability. They're building a blue water navy. China is not only imitating the United States in the sense that they want to become a regional hegemon like us, they're imitating the United States in that they want to have the ability to project economic and political might all around the world, think Belt and Road, and they want the attendant military power to go along with that economic and political power that is projected around the planet. So if China continues to grow into a mighty economic force over the next 20 or 30 years, the competition is not going to be restricted to East Asia. The competition is going to be global in nature. And it's going to take place in places like the Persian Gulf. If you read the newspapers carefully every day, you can see that the Chinese are forming close relations with the Iranians. They're trying to form close relations with the Saudis. This is hardly surprising because they get a lot of oil from the Persian Gulf. And when you start thinking about Belt and Road, they're going to want to have the military capability to protect their interests that go along with Belt and Road. So this will be a new Cold War, different in certain ways from the old Cold War, but similar in other ways. Is it possible to have a Cold War of that sort um, while the American and Chinese economies are so closely entangled still, is that going to have to break apart? We're going to have to stop seeing iPhones made in China and the many, many other things which feed, you know, American consumers stopping coming from China, coming from somewhere else. And I suppose more broadly then in relation to that, will America be seeking to have the same disentanglement happening with its allies, whether they be in East Asia or in Western Europe? Well, I believe that there's going to be some disentanglement 
to use your rhetoric, there's going to be some disentanglement. You already see it happening. But there's too much economic intercourse between the United States and China on one hand, and China and uh, the countries of East Asia for that economic intercourse to end completely. So my view is there will be significant economic competition between the United States and China moving forward. Uh, and uh, there'll be an end to some of the economic intercourse, but much of it will continue. Now, what does this tell you about a new Cold War? If you think about the old Cold War during the period from roughly 1945 to 1989, uh, there was very little economic intercourse between East and West. But that's not the right analogy. The analogy you want to look at is pre-World War I Europe. In Europe, before World War I, you had an intense security competition that manifested itself in two alliances, the Triple Entente, which was Britain, France, and Russia, and the Triple Alliance, which was Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Italy. So you had this intense security competition in Europe before World War I, that of course resulted on August 1st, 1914, in World War I. At the same time, you had extensive economic intercourse among all of the players in Europe before 1914. So to put it in simplistic terms, you had economic cooperation and security competition. But that economic co cooperation and the prosperity that came from that economic cooperation in the crunch was not enough to trump the political competition, the security competition, and as a result, you had war. So my view moving forward in East Asia, just to focus on that area, is that you will continue to have lots of economic cooperation. And that will fuel prosperity in all of the countries involved, the United States and China included. But at the same time, you're going to have a wicked security competition at the military level and somewhat at the economic level. And a lot of people are betting that prosperity will keep the peace. And all I would say is I would not bet a lot of money on that. And World War I is a good reason not to bet a lot of money on that argument. Uh, that's really not a comforting parallel. 19, uh, 1914 is, is not a comforting parallel. But that, just to push you a little bit further on the question of allies, because one of the things that's happened in the last four years, obviously, is that Donald Trump has seemed at times almost to take pleasure in uh, in upsetting his allies and in doing some damage probably to traditional allies in NATO and and elsewhere. And I, I presume there's an expectation among those countries and a hope that they're going to return to something they might characterize as, as normality now over the next couple of years. But they must be approaching the United States now with a certain amount of reservations, mustn't they? Because we don't know who we're going to get as president in four years' time. In fact, it could be Donald Trump again. I agree completely with what you say. I mean, just to embellish, uh, I think that Trump's biggest mistake on the foreign policy front was how he treated uh, our allies. And this includes our allies not just in Europe, but in East Asia as well. Uh, Trump uh, basically was contemptuous of 
all of our allies and was interested in slapping them around at every opportunity that presented itself. Uh, and I think this was a major mistake. And indeed, I think it was a bigger mistake in East Asia because it hindered uh, our efforts to put together a balancing coalition or an alliance against China. There's no question that the United States cannot contain China by itself. We need allies. We really need allies. And the only way you're going to get countries in places like Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia uh, to ally closely with the United States and work with the United States is to treat them with respect. Uh, and President Trump did not do that. And I would add uh, that for purposes of dealing with China down the road, we're going to need European help as well. We're going to need our European allies to cooperate with us on the economic front in terms of dealing with China. And President Trump has treated the Europeans with contempt as well as the East Asians. And again, I think this has been remarkably foolish. Now, what will happen with President-elect Biden when he moves into the White House? I think Biden will go to great lengths to treat our allies much better. Uh, I think Europeans and East Asian friends of the United States should welcome Biden for that reason. Uh, I think it'll be the most important change that takes place on the foreign policy front, uh, how the United States treats its allies. And I think that's all for the good, for sure. But you then say, quite correctly, who will be in the White House in 2024, and will we get more Biden, or will we get sort of uh, Trump or someone who looks like Trump coming back and treating their allies once again with hostility? And I think uh, it's not clear who will be president in 2024. And therefore, one has to admit that it is possible that uh, any good that Biden does on this front will be reversed. I don't think that's likely to happen, but it is possible. I mean, it happened over the past four years and it could happen again. But one could argue that it won't happen again in large part because China will grow more powerful over the next four years, and it'll become more apparent to who is ever in the White House in 2024 that we need allies. One could argue that we were only beginning to recognize China's, uh, the, the China threat in the Trump years. And because we were only beginning to recognize the threat, Trump could get away with slapping our allies around. But now, Four year now and four years from now, for sure, uh, the threat will be so clear-cut that Trump or whoever gets elected, uh, other than Biden or Harris in 2024, will understand that we have to uh, play nice with our allies and you know cooperate with them. I mean, that, is, that implies a, a certain level of coherence in foreign policy, which we haven't seen in the last couple of years. And I wonder with those allies, they, they look at the United States. It has been the hegemon for, for almost a century um, now, but it seems to have got itself into an awkward position here. It seems uh, riven apart by uh, polarized politics. It, those politics seem to play into a kind of a... Uh, an inertia at government level with the, the the separation of powers, meaning that it's very difficult to actually get anything done. And it seems almost at times, maybe when I'm looking at too much TV, it seems to be going through a sort of a nervous breakdown, which makes the rest of us all very nervous as well. 
Well, there's a couple points to be made. One is you do want to remember that although most Europeans think American foreign policy was a great success uh, from 1990 up until 2016, and most Europeans couldn't believe that the American public would elect Donald Trump, the fact is that most Americans did not see American foreign policy or domestic politics in the United States the way Europeans see it. There's just a huge amount of dissatisfaction in the United States with the establishment. The antipathy towards the elites in the United States is just not to be underestimated, right? And uh, they look at, you know, liberal hegemony, our foreign policy. They look at the 2008 financial crisis uh, and assorted other failed policies, and, uh, and, and they say, throw the bums out. And uh, that's what helped get Donald Trump elected, right? So you, you just want to understand that a lot of dissatisfaction in the land, and I think a lot of it is legitimate. At the same time, you also have this wicked polarization. And the polarization is more on domestic politics grounds than on foreign policy grounds. Uh, I don't think there's, you know, th there's that much polarization at the foreign policy level. There's some, but it's really at the domestic level. And, you know, the question is, how's this going to play itself out? You say that it looks like the United States is having a nervous breakdown. Uh, and you think that that, that that does not portend well uh, for, the, for the Americans, for, for American foreign policy. Uh, I think as an American, it does look like we're having a nervous breakdown. I, I'm not going to disagree with you. Uh, you know, what exactly that breakdown looks like, how it plays itself out is very hard to say. As you surely understand, Joe Biden is going to go to great lengths to ameliorate those problems. He fully understands that we're uh, probably on the verge of a nervous breakdown, and he desperately wants to avoid that. The question is whether he can do it or not. Um, and that remains to be seen. The polarization is really deep here. It is not to be underestimated. And it's not clear that Biden, who's not a young man, by the way, you know, can fix this problem. How it plays out on the foreign policy front, I don't think it will matter that much there. I, I think there's enough consensus on the foreign policy front um, that uh, it, it won't matter that much uh, in terms of how the United States deals with the rest of the world. Uh, I think where you really want to be nervous if you're an American, or even if you're not an American, is on the, foreign, is on the domestic front. Uh, it's, uh, th there's just huge potential for all sorts of trouble at home. And by the way, the problem is not simply the divide between Republicans and Democrats. There's also a huge divide in the Democratic Party in the governing, soon-to-be governing party. You have the Bernie Sanders wing and the Joe Biden wing of the Democratic Party. And there's not, you know, foreign policy is not a big issue there. It's an issue of sorts, but it's not a big issue. The big issue is domestic politics there. And how that plays itself out remains to be seen. And that could be a quite bloody battle as well. Uh, so there's a lot going on inside the United States that's a cause for, you know, great concern. But again, my main point is I think it won't have that big an effect on foreign policy. 
John Muir Sharma, thanks so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure, you. And that's it for today's podcast. Special thanks to the Institute of International and European Affairs for making today's conversation possible. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon. And do remember that if you want to get in touch with us, we're always delighted to hear from you. Just email us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much for listening.